Hi there. What's up? I'm Ola, an inhabitant of Lightbulb Moments, aka marketing director, a happy aunt, and an utter nerd. I'm Chris, a designer, a creative tech enthusiast, and a semi-grown kid. This is the Renting Bananas podcast, where Chris and I explore the depths of the human condition, covering everything from sex to relationships to mental health and how to stop spending money on things you don't need and everything nomad life. Join us on this audio journey as we ask more questions than we can actually answer. Welcome back to another episode of Ranting Bananas. Today we'll be diving to the subject of comedy. But before that, last week I jumped on a podcast called Seven Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. It's one of the most popular English podcasts in Vietnam with over 10,000 downloads. So go check that out. Today, I will actually be speaking to the podcast host. He is a stand-up comedian, a teacher, a content creator, a Glasgow native, and all-around good lad, Neil Mackay. Welcome, Neil. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, Chris. No worries. How was that intro? Was that correct in painting who you are? Or why don't you tell us a little bit more about y- yourself? I, I think you got it perfect. The only thing is we're now at over 13,000 downloads. So um, just a little correction there. That's awesome, man. That's good to see. And you've had some really good guests on. Like one of the recent guests you had on is the rapper. I can't remember his name. What, what was the most recent episode you had? The most recent episode, he's not a rapper, but he is a musician. It was uh, Nam Den, or Nadis is his real name, but his Vietnamese name is Nan- Nam Den. It was his son that was rapping, and he was actually uh, singing on the track, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, that was really cool. I was yet to listen to that whole podcast, but I definitely saw some of his music after you posted about it, and it, he seems to be blowing up, so that's really cool for him. Yeah, he's massive. He's got over 66,000 YouTube subscribers and really just really popular in Vietnam. And it's cool that that song that you're talking about, it's actually a cover from a young, dark-skinned Vietnamese guy singing about what it's like to have dark skin as a, as a Vietnamese man. Because obviously a lot of people in Vietnam, there's lots of different ethnicities in Vietnam, but the predominant one is quite light-skinned. And so he was singing a song about being a dark-skinned Vietnamese man. And then Nam has taken that song and used pretty much the same lyrics, I think, but it applies to him as well, you know, as being a black man. So when you watch the song on YouTube and you see the lyrics, they're pretty awesome. And then I went and found, like, he, he linked to the original song. So I went and listened to the original song as well. And they're both really awesome songs. Yeah, totally, man. All right, well, let's get back to you. I want to know <laughs> how you got to Vietnam. Like, what's the story? I'm glad you caveated that with what's the story, because if you just said, how did you get to Vietnam? The answer is a plane, but um, <laughs> we can delve deeper than that. So I first came to Vietnam in 2015. My wife and I came on a, a vacation. So we spent about two weeks here. Her sister lives here still to this day. That was so back in 2015. So we came to visit them. We did the whole country. We went all the way from Sapa down to the Mekong Delta and all the main hotspots in between, like, you know, Hoi An and things like that. And like most people just fell in love with the place. The weekend that we got home from that trip, we lived in Wellington at the time. And we were so obsessed with Vietnamese food. We spent the whole weekend finding Vietnamese food. And, you know, it's one of these things you never notice things until you start to look for it. So we'd never looked for Vietnamese food in Wellington before. And as soon as we started looking for it, it was on every corner. There was street food Vietnamese. There was Vietnamese food at the markets. There was restaurants. 
And so we spent most of that weekend eating at Vietnamese restaurants, drinking Vietnamese coffee. The only thing we didn't do was one of the restaurants was selling Ba 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 beer, which, as you probably know, is the cheapest beer here. It's like 15,000 is like 60 US cents, something like that. And in this restaurant in New Zealand, which is notoriously expensive, they were trying to charge like seven or eight dollars for this beer that costs like 60 cents. So we forgo that. We're like, there's no way we're going to, there's no way we miss it that much that we're going to drink a ba 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 for eight dollars. But um, we spent all that weekend eating Vietnamese food. We were making our own Vietnamese food. We went to the Asian supermarket, which we'd never been to before. We found all the ingredients we were looking for. We got all these recipes. And so that's what started it. And then we were like, right, let's go traveling. So we spent the next year saving up. Um, we're on a real strict budget, getting a life in order, total jobs we were leaving, all of that stuff. And we were meant to go on a year's trip around Southeast Asia or as long as we could. And we started off in Thailand. We did Southern Thailand, went through down into Malaysia. We did the length of Malaysia. And then we flew to Vietnam. And by this point, this is like May 2016. And the plan was just to do our English teaching certificate, which is called a CELTA. It takes a month to do it. It's like an intense month that you study to get the certification. So we thought we'd be here about six, seven, eight weeks at most, a couple of weeks before and after the course. And then really naively, we thought that we would just get the certificate and then go on our merry way and work around Asia. We just kind of, again, just so naive, we thought that we would have this teaching certificate and that we would just be able to rock up in some little town and be like, yeah, we'll teach us, we'll teach you on the beach. This will be fun. And as we finished the course and just started looking for jobs, they were all looking for one-year contracts, minimum six months, we found. And we realized, Really quickly, especially we got the CELTA, which is the kind of gold standard of teaching certifications for English language, that and TEFL, but and more than an online course as well. And so we realized pretty quickly, we're like, oh, this is like a proper job. Like this isn't just like bum around Asia and like teach. I mean, and I, I mean, I think you can do that, but it's pretty um, unethical, I guess, to just be bumming about and teaching. Like you're not really making a difference to anyone's life by by doing that. It's quite selfish. So we then got offered a contract from the company that we did the course with, which was ILA. Had a, it was a really, really, really difficult decision. We were talking with all our friends that we'd made. Some of them were already planning to leave. Some of them were planning to stay. Some of them were on the fence. We're like, what do we do? This was our plans. And I remember we were going out for drinks and dinner. Like We just really, really didn't know. Big discussions between ourselves and our friends and eventually like, okay, let's let's give it a go. We can If we don't like it, we'll leave. So we signed part-time contracts um, with the view that, you know, if we we, we want to give up, we want to leave, we can leave. But almost immediately, we loved teaching. We thought it was great. And so within about a month, I think we signed full-time contracts. So that short trip of maybe six to eight weeks turned into a year. Then we got offered the second-year contract, and then we, we decided to sign that. So we got a second-year contract, so that now turned into just over two years. Then I got offered the job that I did up until recently, which was my background is in charity fundraising and working for charities. And so I got the opportunity to manage the community network, which was like the charity department of the company that we worked for. And so I took that opportunity. Then my wife, a promotion came up and she got that job. So suddenly it went from six weeks to a year to two years to then signing these contracts and promotions. And another two years later, we're still here. So now we're coming up on five years this May after initially really turning up with a backpack and planning to be here for six to eight weeks. Wow, that's quite a journey and lots of uncertainty in there. But wherever you're at now, let's say, because you've done your five years, right? Is this somewhere you see yourself living more long term? Like 
the next five to 10 years, will it be in Vietnam? Or are you just happy with the situation that you're in now? It's a good question. And it's one I ask a lot of people as well. And most people I ask have the same answer as me. Um, you just don't know. Because as, as you know, living in Vietnam is really challenging. The language, especially for myself, is a big, big challenge. Lots of things like pollution as well. But for the moment, and, and most expats you speak to just love it here. So there's no immediate plans to leave. One of the people I interviewed recently, she's been here on and off for 40 years. And I said to her the same question. I said, will you be here forever? Was the question I asked her. And she was like, I don't know. So five years, probably. We have a dog now. COVID's obviously made a big impact on plans for the future. Definitely in terms of bringing the dog back to New Zealand, that COVID's had a big impact on that. Um, so I think at least five years, 10 years, maybe 20 years. I like just literally don't know. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Like I do want to be in Vietnam right now and I'm actually on my way back. But in terms of what commitment can I make to myself in terms of years is uh, arbitrary, right? Like because so Mike Tyson says everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. We'll take that advice from Tyson. To add to that, I, I prefer what John Lennon says is that life is what happens when you're busy making other plans, which I yeah, feel has nice. been the story of my life. It, it just goes by so quickly. I'm nearly 38 now and it's, I can't believe that. And it, But it's like, yeah, I'm just always doing stuff and then it, suddenly life goes by. So I think that probably applies to yeah, a lot of expats here. They come here, whether it's short term, long term, whatever. And then before they know it, they've been here for five years like me and, and, uh, and enjoying it, you know, no, no. I don't really speak to many expats that are making plans to leave, put it that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, I want to sort of shift gears into the podcast that we spoke about earlier, which is 7 Million Bikes. And I want to know from you why you decided to start a podcast. Boredom. Okay. Um... Is the short answer. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. what it was, I, no, I'm being a bit facetious. It was boredom, but what happened was when my wife and I got these new jobs, I actually had the weekends off and she had to work the weekends. And people who know me and my wife know that we are inseparable. We're never apart and we, we love spending time with each other. And so that was a real challenge in the beginning. And I managed to change my days. So I worked a Saturday, but I had Sunday, Monday off. So we could have, we could have a Sunday off together. So I would spend Sundays on my own and I would just be really bored because most of the people we knew and most of my friends were English teachers as well at language centers, which means they work the weekend as well. And then the few people I did know that didn't work the weekend was really, as you know, not a huge amount to do in Saigon. Like the kind of default was just to go out and drink. And while I, that would have been enjoyable, I didn't really want to do that, like especially without Adri, because then like she'd finish work and I'd be drunk or wasted or even tipsy you know and it just really wasn't what I wanted to do was go and drink all day without her so I just I honestly I got so bold like I would just go for a drive on my bike like from d1 to d7 to d2 like just cross the city on my bike but with no aim that's just how bold I was and then so one day I was doing the dishes and I loved podcasts I've listened to podcasts for many years going all the way back to like university like early 2000s when podcasts first started I'd listen to the Ricky Gervais podcast and I was like I should start a podcast that'd be fun and I think we, as you probably know with podcasts it's quite a low barrier to entry you don't need much equipment you don't need much skills obviously you can scale up your equipment and you can improve it but the initial entry is quite a low barrier so doing the dishes one day and I was like why don't I start a podcast that's something I can do on a Sunday and then also because the people in Saigon and the people I knew and I think we talked about it on your episode or I talked about, I talked about it often they kind of get pigeonholed into being teachers or they come and 
become an English teacher. But as you get to know people and you talk to them, everyone's got a really interesting story. Everyone's got a really interesting background. Some of the people I've met, like they make products out of leather. Some of them are artists. Some of them are photographers. Some of them have been rock musicians, comedians, all sorts of um, jobs and interesting stories and backgrounds when you scratch the surface. And so that was the motivation was, well, let's share these people's stories. So that was the reason why I started the podcast and a a short answer and a long answer. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, I I definitely know what you mean. The devil makes work for idle sums, right? I think initially I, I probably didn't start a podcast because of boredom but i've always loved it right and it's from from the love of like just listening to other people talk it's like oh i probably could do this as well you know just one of those things that you kind of want to give it a go but now you've done you know uh, multiple seasons and episodes with a lot of interesting people what's the most difficult challenge when you're trying to grow your listenership or your audience like have you found anything that you're like oh that's super challenging how do i do this yeah i mean just growing the audience is the challenge. Um, I've been really lucky. Like my listenership has been pretty steady from the beginning. It was like 10 times more than I expected. It's not grown substantially in that time. There's been, been episodes that have been listened to more than others. So it's gone up and down, but it's remained pretty steady over all those seasons. So the biggest challenge is, you know, how do you grow it? And then I'm still figuring that out. Because I know now after all these seasons that people enjoy it. The feedback's always great from guests and the people who listen. And, and I often hear from people that uh, always hear something along the lines of, how have I never heard of this? Or this is great. I wish I'd heard of this sooner. So at the end of the day, in terms of growing the product, which is a podcast, it just comes down to marketing, right? And the same with any product in the world, whether it's Apple or Coca-Cola, the more you spend, the more you get in front of people. So, I mean, already a podcast takes a little bit of money to make, right? And then it takes a lot of time to make. So I don't really have any money or budget for marketing. Like I'm not at that level yet. I don't have sponsors or anything like that. So I just try and think of creative ways as best I can to to grow that audience. So like recently for this season, I've partnered with Bliss Saigon, which is an online magazine. And I interviewed their their creator. She's at episode two of this season. And so they now publish weekly articles about the podcast. So they'll, they'll be publishing an article about you soon. They publish an article about each guest. And then just doing what we're doing right now, I'm teaming up with you know more content creators that are either in Saigon or connected to Vietnam and, and trying to appear on their channels and, and vice versa, which has been a bit of a leap for me. Like it's, I'm kind of weird. Like I'm not an introvert, obviously, because I like I do comedy and I do a podcast, but I am also kind of loath to put myself out there. Like I'm really happy to get behind the 7 million bikes brand, but I don't always like, I don't, you don't really put myself front and center, but I think I've realized that, you know, to really grow the brand that I ultimately need to put myself out there. So that's kind of now what I'm doing as well. So just plugging away at what I can do to get the podcast in front of more people. Cause I think it's, being clear that the concept works, that people enjoy it, that people want more. I just need to get more people to hear of it, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's exciting that the content creator community in Vietnam are up for collaborating and working with each other. And I, I think it's, you know, it's a win-win for everybody, right? Everybody's trying to do something interesting and why not share each other's stories? And that's what your podcast does. Back to the question that we mentioned in your previous podcast, which is you mentioned that on your podcast, you don't really talk about comedy. Could you tell me a bit more about that? Well, what it was when I started the podcast, I was actually really new to comedy. So it was just a really separate thing at the time. You know, my main outlet was the podcast. 
And that was all about sharing people's stories and it still is. So even the first guest in the podcast was J.K. Hobson, who I knew of like through people we'd met a few times, but I didn't know him well. And he was a comedian and I knew he'd been in a band that were pretty big back in the day. And I just wanted to, again, it was just, I want to know more about his story because I knew it was interesting. So I actually delayed the start because I wanted him to be the first guest because I just knew it was going to be interesting. And sure enough, we ended up talking for so long. I, I split the first episode into two parts. We talked for like two or three hours. And the best thing about it is we've become good friends ever since then, which has been one of the biggest things about the podcast is even people like yourself, you know, when you get to Saigon, we're definitely going to be meeting up for a beer. It's been meeting people and then, you know, making friendships through that as well. But to go back to your question, yeah, in that episode, we just really didn't talk about comedy much because it was, that's just not what it was about. And, and that's not what I was about at the time. But then over time, as I got into comedy more, I did, I struggled a bit about having this kind of like split personality where I was on stage telling jokes, making people laugh. But then at the same time, doing these kind of serious introspective podcast episodes with people and it's not jokes and it's not laughter and things like that. But then I spoke to a friend, uh, another comedian who's had a massive influence on, on what I do called Angie the Diva. And I spoke to her about it one night, just in passing, kind of uh, how I felt. And she, and what she said to me was, you know, she said, all people are multifaceted. She's like, you don't need to pigeonhole yourself into one box. You don't need to do one thing. We can all do more than one thing. And then that just made me feel really comfortable that like these two things can coexist, you know. And so because the podcast was never about comedy and I didn't want that to be the niche of the podcast and also because there are a million podcasts all about comedy, I just wanted to keep it separate. So if I have a comedian on, I'm not overly interested specifically in their comedy. I'm interested in their story like everyone else. If comedy comes up, that's fine. And if my personality comes through as funny, like that would be good. But I don't do any interviews with it in my head. Like, oh, I need to tell a funny joke or I need to be funny. The main aim of each podcast is I need to tell this person's story. And you mentioned you got into comedy fairly recently. How did you get into comedy? Like what made you make that first step? Well, to go back, Angie the Diva can be credited for that. So I'd wanted to do stand-up comedy, I normally say seven years. So I think it was about seven years I'd wanted to do stand-up comedy. It just, I'd wanted to, I'd loved it. I've always gone to live shows. I've always watched live performances. I've always watched comedy. So, and it was just something over the years that I really wanted to try. Because I'd go to comedy shows sometimes in different countries. Like, I can do better than that. Or I could be funnier than that. Or, and I'd envisage myself on stage. But man, the 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 leap, the step to just actually do it was just too terrifying. Like I lived in New Zealand and I would, I, a couple of times I went to open mic nights with notes in my pocket and didn't get up on stage. I just couldn't do it. And so here in, in Vietnam, I was, again, I was getting closer. Well, just continuing. I was getting closer and closer to making that leap. And we would go to open mic nights. We'd go to other shows as well. But there's one open mic night that we were at. I had my notes in my pocket. I thought about what I'd wanted to say. I think I'd even maybe practiced a little bit. And luckily that night, there was like two people there. Like there was no comedians. There was nobody in the audience. I think the one comedian, like Angie did a bit of an intro. Then she introduced the first comedian who I can't remember now who it was. And then Angie got back up and she was literally like, well, guys, that that's all we've got tonight. Like, does, does anyone here want to give her a go? You know, it's open mic night. You can come up. And, and that was literally like my ding, ding moment. And I like put my hand on. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And so I got up. I got my notes out. I didn't try and do it without my notes. I, I think I did about my first joke without my notes. And then immediately I had to get my notes out of my pocket. 
And so I did my five minutes and then that, that was it. I was just, it was just, I guess like ripping off a bandaid or whatever you want to say. It was just making that leap to do it the first time. And then after that, I was right into it. Man, that sounds absolutely terrifying as well. To get on stage and tell jokes is, I think, one of the hardest things that anybody can do, right? Oh, my God. Yeah, I can do, do definitely know, hear the struggle. Do you want to know uh, my first ever joke? Definitely. It was, it was a dick joke, of course. <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything else. Okay, go well, for I it. Feel, I, feel like, I feel like you would appreciate it after I've listened to your podcast about Japanese sex robots and, and a couple of, of your other episodes. I was like, Chris will appreciate this. No, so my first joke was people tell you when you're nervous in front of an audience, you should imagine them naked. So I'm imagining everyone naked right now. And uh, there was a guy on his own. And I was like, I kind of looked at him in the crotch and I was like, well, sorry, I can, I can see why you're on your own. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then there was a guy and a couple with a girl and I looked at him and like kind of looked impressed. And I was like, and I can see why you're together, eh? That's good. That's good. Some crowd work, huh? Like it. Like Yeah. It. So that got a laugh and then that was a, that was me. Okay. You mentioned that, you know, you go to live shows and you've always been into comedy, right? So who were some of the like iconic heroes or comedy heroes that you sort of looked up to or you really liked to, to watch and listen to? Mm. This is like the easiest question to answer. It's two people. It's Billy Connolly and then Bill Hicks. I assume you know who these people are? Yes, I do. Yeah, so Billy Connolly, I mean, he's from Glasgow. He he was a welder. My dad was a welder. He's from Glasgow. He's like Scotland's son. Like he is like one below God in Scotland. And he's also just the funniest, nicest, most interesting man you could ever hope. I've never met him, but that you could ever hope to to watch and, you know, obviously Scottish people are known and Glaswegians in particular are known for their sense of humour. So, I mean, they've just been brought up in that. But Billy Connolly, and still to this day, is just, there's no one bigger, there's no one better than Billy Connolly. And then there's Bill Hicks, who is the one that has probably, he's probably had the biggest impact on my life of anyone, like growing up, like through my adolescence. He was featured, there's a movie called Human Traffic, which if you've not seen it or anyone hasn't seen it, it's kind of like an indie classic Go look it up. It's basically a bunch of friends going out for a night in Wales and all taking ecstasy together. And it's just the most unbelievable movie ever. And in that movie, the main character puts on a short clip of Bill Hicks before he goes out for the night. And he introduces it. He says, before I go, I've got to listen to the late great prophet Bill Hicks, which is still the, the best description of who Bill Hicks is, the late great prophet. And so this little clip was all about taking drugs and drugs aren't bad and blah, blah, blah. And so that just got me, I went, out and found a, uh, this is how old I am. I found a VCR of Bill Hicks one night stand. It was an HBO special, three pounds in HMV. Videos don't exist. I don't think HMV exists anymore, but I got this video for three pounds. It's just a half hour HBO special. And it was just unbelievable. The stuff he talks about, he is like a prophet. He, he's kind of anti-government, pro-drugs, very left, very liberal, very caustic, uh, righteous, and just absolutely hilarious. Like just so, so, so funny. And so Bill Hicks now is really popular. Any comedian knows who Bill Hicks is. Everyone knows who Bill Hicks is because we now have the internet and YouTube and Netflix. But at that time, nobody really knew who he was. And so I'm not trying to be like, oh, no one knew who he was. I'm so cool. But it, it's just true. Like, so I sought out all of his old stuff because by that point, he'd already passed away. He died of cancer. And I found all his material, started getting into it, started sharing it with friends. And it's quite funny because that, even back then was how I envisaged myself being a comedian. Like if I did comedy, I was going to be caustic. I was going to be anti-government. I was going to be really 
intelligent and visceral and smart and make you think and, and be amazing like Bill Hicks. And I think every comedian thinks the same. But as I've done comedy, I've realized that I've become Billy Connolly or a, a pale imitation of Billy Connolly. Billy Connolly was just a storyteller. He was just a funny, funny man who would tell you stories and they would always be hilarious. He could just tell them in such a funny way. He was non-offensive. He swore a lot, but that wasn't he never did it in an offensive way. He never said anything offensive about anyone. And so as over the last couple of years, as I've been doing comedy, I've realized that I have not become Bill Hicks at all, even though he's still my hero. I've become more based on Billy Connolly. Right. Because that was actually one of my next questions. Because you like Bill Hicks so much. Do you find yourself trying to be a social commentator and be more cerebral? Cerebral is the word I couldn't think of. That's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, because he's very to... intelligent with his comedy and it's like really insightful what, what he's saying and how he dissects how he thinks, right? And it, it's very interesting. You can go back, like I got into, I don't know if you've heard of a comedian called Lenny Bruce. I have not, no. So Lenny Bruce is like a precursor for Bill Hicks and a massive influence on Bill Hicks. And he goes back, I think it was the 50s and he was doing that social commentary and that pushing the boundaries and he got absolutely destroyed by the government. Like the, the FBI FBI, I think it was, or whatever government department or the local police would be at his shows. And as soon as he stepped on stage, they would arrest him for obscenity laws. And they just hounded him. And he wouldn't, he was a massive advocate of free speech. So which obviously America is very important. So this is my right to free speech. But they hounded him and hounded him. And he eventually, I can't remember now how he died, but he basically died because the government just destroyed him and destroyed his career. So you go back to Lenny Bruce, then there was Sam Kinison, which I never really got into. And then there's George Carlin as well. And then Bill Hicks. So all these people, you're really cerebral, really intelligent, really smart. I wish I could be like that. And maybe I could if I sat down. The thing is, I don't really like sit and think and write jokes, which I probably should. I just tell stories because that's just what comes to me. But maybe eventually my comedy will develop, but it could never develop to the level of these guys. And there's so many other people that do it so well as well. Mm, yeah. Well, Recently, comedy has a huge like sort of renaissance, like the revival, I would say, of comedy and comedians are treated like rock stars again, especially with podcasts where people have taken it to a different level. For example, Joe Rogan is the most noticeable name out there. What's your experience been like in the world of comedy since you've started? And have you had any special treatment? Special treatment in like what way? I don't know, because I'm not, <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I guess it's the open-ended question in terms of, like, have you been given, you know, priority tables at a restaurant because someone recognized uh, you? Let, or let's like just that. clarify. Let's clarify that for a minute. I am still a very, very amateur comedian. I mean, I do it a lot, and I, I run shows, which takes more work than doing the comedy. And in terms of being a comedian, some people listening to this would probably say like, I shouldn't even call, I shouldn't even let you call me a comedian or be allowed or be, I, I don't really call myself a comedian so much. I do feel like I do more almost full time now. And so I don't make a living out of it because it's almost impossible to do that here in Vietnam. So in terms of special treatment, like, yeah, absolutely not. No, no. I mean, I'm still so amateur that it's not even close and uh, and here in saigon as well it's such a small scene so the most that i've had is like being recognized a couple of times that's kind of thrown me for a loop when someone's like oh you're neil mckay and i'm like whoa that like um the coolest thing that ever happened 
was recently we did a show up in Da Nang and um, the next day we were in a bar. It was me, my wife and the other comedian who went up, Wayne. And this guy just came up to me and he just said one of my lines to me from the night before. And I was like, that was the coolest thing that had ever happened to me. That's awesome when someone remembered your punchline. That's actually fucking amazing. So yeah, that was by far the coolest thing. I was like, whoa, that's awesome. (laughs) That's brilliant, man. I want to talk a bit about this book called Humor Seriously. And it's written by Dr. Jennifer Acker and Naomi Bagdonas. And uh, the book is called Humor Seriously, Why Humor is a Secret Weapon in Business and Life. So these two professors at Stanford teach a course called Humor Serious Business. And they teach students how to recognize their humor styles in order to leverage their superpower, their innate superpower of comedy into business and life. So I want to give you these four categories, Neil, and you're going to tell me which one you resonate with more, like personally. This is not on stage. This is just who you think you are and what is your style of comedy. So number one is stand-up. Uh, a bold natural entertainer who's not afraid to cross the line. You build intimacy with teasing. And it's kind of like a, if I make fun of you, it means I like you. So that's your stand-up persona, if you will. The second category or style is sweetheart, like kind of subtle humor to uplift others, earnest, honest, and a bit understated humor. And that's the sweetheart. The third one is called sniper. Someone that interrupts people a bit edgy, a bit, sarcastic sort of a bit nuanced and they pick their moments carefully and they see the irony in things so their humor can be somewhat insightful that's sniper and then we have magnets which is like expressive big personalities gets everybody laughing very generous with also their laughter and demonstrates a lot of joy so that's magnets which one do you think you align with closely number one immediately it's literally one of my jokes is if I make fun of you, it's because I like you. And that's why I'll never make fun of French people. <laughs> oh, for all the French people listening, man. Oh, shit. Which yeah. is zero, by the way. So it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, no, n- number one. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And what would you say about your wife? Which one is she? Yeah. Ooh. Quickly remind me again. Two, three or four. So four was a magnet. So n- the big laughter. Not that one. Sorry, Adrian. Uh, two and sniper. three. Sniper uh, is number three, which is like, you know, edgy, sarcastic, just kind of like insightful humor, sweetheart, like subtle to uplift others, earnest, honest, bit understated sort of humor. Well, my wife isn't a comedian, but number two, maybe. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. That's a good balance then. Sort of. Yeah, <laughs> you're like oh. <laughs> okay. Well, it's hard because it, she doesn't perform or anything, so it's hard to think which one applies to her. She's the behind the scenes. She's the one that um is like I couldn't do it without her. Like literally couldn't do it without her. Like if I think of something that I think might be funny, I'll say it to her. If she laughs straight away, like that's it. It's it's a joke. That's it done. If she laughs right away, or she'll be like, oh, maybe you could try and say it like this, or what about this, or do this, or add this, or like. She's got an unbelievable, like, comedic brain. Like, we would go together to comedy shows for years. Like, we both loved stand-up comedy. Like, it's something we've just had a shared passion for. So she knows comedy, and she gets it, and she's so also just super, super smart. So she just is able to, like, dissect it and give back feedback. And and then the odd time, she will give me a joke. So, and she gives me shit for never giving her credit. So, Adri, you are getting credit. Sometimes she actually will full-on just, like, once or twice be like, here's a joke, like, 
we were on the way to a show recently or a few months ago and kind of talking about what I was going to say that, that night. You know, most, most of the material is rehearsed, but I was kind of thinking of a couple of off-the-cuff things to say. And then she was like, why don't you say this? And I was like, oh, that's great. And it was my opening joke and it absolutely killed. And um, she always complained. She's like, I wrote that. That was my joke. So, Adri, we know you're amazing. It was your joke. <laughs> Looks like uh, she needs to work up the courage to get on stage as well alongside you or even battle it out, you know. Uh, Everyone asks her all the time. Every show we go to, everyone's like, when are you getting on stage? When are you going to do it? And she always just looks sheepish and she's like, it's not, I'm the like performer that is stupid enough to like put myself out there. She's um, the smart one that just stays back quietly and uh, does all the good hard work in the, in the behind the scenes. When we talk about humor and jokes, like culturally humor is very different in lots of different ways, but have you got a good grasp on the Vietnamese humor because I definitely haven't or how would you analyze it if you were to I don't I wouldn't like to say I have a good grasp of it but I've got a slight grasp of it if you go back into my podcast you listen to my episode with Vumin Tu who is an unbelievable stand-up comedian here she's Vietnamese from Hanoi and we talk about it on that episode and there's a few other episodes I think I talk about it as well from my understanding it's really traditionally like slapstick humor which even if you just flick through the vietnamese tv channels and you see some vietnamese comedy it'll be a guy dressed as a clown slapping another one in the face and the other one falling over all dramatically and things like that the other thing that's been explained to me it can be just really simple it's just a man dressed as a woman is funny like things like this but now though it's changing and it's really interesting that you ask this question because there's a, a group of comedians here um a couple of them like we lay we win they and a few others, they've started a, a comedy group, I guess you could call them. And I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but I think it's Saigon Tiu. And they're all these Vietnamese comics doing comedy in Vietnamese, not like slapstick, silly comedy, like proper comedy. I have no idea what they're saying because I, I haven't seen any of their videos with subtitles yet. And I can't understand what they're saying. But since they started about six months ago, maybe a little bit longer, I'm not sure. They have just been killing it. Like they're getting sponsorship. They're doing sold out shows with like, I think over a hundred people. Their um, YouTube channel, I saw they got one of those gold buttons that YouTube gives you. Like their YouTube channel is just blown up. And they all started in English comedy. Like I used to perform with them. They, they became finalists. I don't, I think one of them maybe won the Vietnam comedy competition and this was all in their second language in English. And they are so, so funny. So they all learned their craft doing stand-up in English. And the reason why, and this is, I'm pretty sure I can confidently say this. The reason why it's so difficult to do stand-up in Vietnamese, from what I've been told, is because the language doesn't allow itself the nuances of the English language, like double entendre or emphasis on a word or sarcasm. Like it just doesn't translate and then maybe these guys have figured out how to do it but from what i've been told that's why you can't the translation the grammar the inflections the tone it's just really difficult to take everything that makes english humor funny and then translate it into into vietnamese and for a vietnamese audience so i don't know how these guys have done it but they don't even do shows anymore in english because i asked them a lot and they've just said to me it's too difficult to go back and forth between english and vietnamese so because they're just doing so well in vietnamese uh, they're, they're focusing on that which is awesome to see yeah that's an amazing story and i definitely need to check out some of their videos after this i want to sort of switch gears a bit and go back to the question before last sorry i'm just like jumping around scatterbrain here sound good 
I want to touch more about how humor plays a role in business, right? And there was this study done at Wharton and Harvard about using humor at work. And it doesn't even have to be good humor or inappropriate humor, just using a bit of lighthearted humor. Apparently, people who use humor at work are 37% more respected and also seen as more confident at work. How do you think comedy has played in your professional setting outside of stand-up, for example? Has it benefited you in any way? Have you used comedy to your advantage? Things like that. That's an interesting question. When I think about it, I can break it down. There's kind of two answers. There's two parts to it. So quick, I'll talk about the second part of my career and then I'll go back. Second part of my career, office jobs, uh, working for charities, writing mail, writing letters that get sent to people, doing community fundraising, all that type of thing, all that type of stuff, corporate fundraising. And in terms of that, I would think I would say the answer is no, I don't use or didn't use humor in a professional setting because I would never have thought it to be appropriate. So when I'm doing that kind of role, and again, talking about people being multifaceted, I guess, I pride myself on being professional. I mean, even in comedy, I pride myself on being professional, turn up on time, you know, all that stuff. But in terms of a, a job like that, I wouldn't be coming into meetings like cracking jokes like because the problem is if you get it wrong it's so bad like if you try and say a joke and people don't find it funny you look like an idiot or at worst you're gonna you might offend somebody so why bother like trying that like that's just just unprofessional to to be honest not to say when i'm sitting in the pub on a friday night with my colleagues we can have a joke and a laugh again but i'm not like a joke teller. i'm not like oh blah 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 like joke 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 it would just be like oh hey this thing happened to me this was funny like blah 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 that's it so for, in that sense, and I would say if you have an office job or a corporate job, something like that, I personally wouldn't do it. But that, I mean, it's up to everyone else what they do. But before I moved into the office type arena, my job for four years in Australia was face-to-face fundraising. So I was one of those people that we all love to hate. I used to hate them before I did that job that stand in the street with a clipboard and ask you to donate monthly to a charity. And um, I did that for four years. I didn't think I'd do it for four minutes, but I ended up loving it. I did it because I wanted to raise money for charity. I raised millions and millions of dollars. But the way that you had to do that was engage people and make it funny. So I only am now starting to realize, and again, I think as my wife kind of pointed out to me, she's like, you did stand up on the street for four years. Like you've only done stand up for a couple of years, like on a stage, but you did stand up for four years. Like that was how you got people to stop is the biggest thing. How do you get someone to stop and talk to you? So you always had to think of like a one line or just one line that would get them to stop. Then you've got to make them laugh. You've got to make them, you know, like you, that they're going to give you their bank details or credit card details and sign up for a monthly donation. So in that role, humor, like I couldn't have done that role without humor. Like I literally was the only reason I was successful, I guess, was because I was funny. But even then, I then I was probably more different. So then after work, I would switch off and I would go into my shell and I would go into myself. I wouldn't want to hang out with people at work. I just want to go home and chill out. But I think because you put so much energy into the day and then maybe moving into more of an office role where I'm sitting at a desk and I wouldn't be using humor, then it'd be more of an incentive then afterwards to go out and have a laugh and have a talk. So for me, again, being multifaceted, compartmentalized, however you want to say it, I think there's different times for different things, you know? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I have a bit of a narrow view because I've been working in tech and tech is very different where it's like, you can wear what you want and nobody's in a suit and tie, but you're in an office, right? And it's, of course, it's a professional setting. But I've always thought that the people who don't take themselves too seriously at work or who crack jokes in meetings are typically the people that I like more just in general. So there's this really weird of like casual and professional sort of environment in tech. And I definitely have thought about some of the people that I've met. And typically they are the people that don't mind cracking crappy jokes or maybe one or two degrees inappropriate. I mean, you get that in Vietnam a lot in the office, like lots of inappropriate jokes, but it's uh, for some reason it's okay, you know, and there's like an element of freedom to that. So you kind of understand that person more, right? Or you just kind of build this like instant rapport if they say something that you find funny, which is really cool. And in my perspective, I believe work should be, you know, more freeing, right? Like, of course you have to be professional, But you also have to be yourself, right? You don't want to always put on a mask when you go to work because I don't think that's natural, right? You should uh, embrace personalities, even if they might say something stupid or not. And this is, of course, you know, in a very intimate sort of colleague-colleague relationship versus like a client. If you're trying to sell them something, then maybe not joke about the attire they're wearing or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, anyway i digress that's all right i just it sounds like we've had obviously a different working experience so it's quite hard to compare right right yeah 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 no it's it's good to see uh, another perspective another thing i want to ask you is do you think that anyone can be funny or do you think it can be trained as a skill so do you mean funny as in get on stage and do stand up or just be funny in general just be funny in general Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean I don't want to say no, but I mean, if you're not funny, you're not funny in ge- in general. But if you want to be a stand-up, I believe anyone could do that because it's a skill that you can learn. So that's why I'm kind of asking, like, what what do you mean? Okay, why don't you help me dissect it? What you just said, you're thinking of the word funny as like naturally intrinsic, make people laugh just without really thinking about it. But then comedy is something that you could tactically write, plan, strategize, and actually write joke to elicit some sort of response. Is that how you're thinking about these two things? That, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So in um, terms of can anyone be funny? I mean, anyone can say something funny and you're like, haha, that was funny. And I know a lot of people that are pretty boring that don't really say anything funny or I have friends that maybe don't say funny things, but I still really like them as a person. They're like one of my best friends. They're just maybe not saying like funny things. So you know what I mean? Yeah, I just wanted in terms, uh, to run that by you. In terms of comedy, it makes me think of, I don't know if you know the story of Eddie Izzard, comedian oh, from I the don't. UK. No, I don't. So he is an incredible person. If you go and look him up, he's done some incredible challenges. Like he, he did like a marathon every day for a month or something like that. He swam across the English Channel and he's now got kind of one of these like almost Oprah Winfrey, the secret mindsets. Like you, if you put your mind to anything, you can do it if you 100% put your mind to it because he's proven it to himself over and over again. And the first thing was stand up. So he said to himself, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. I'm going to be a successful stand-up comedian. So he got a job like in a working behind the bar, I think, in a comedy club. Eventually got on stage. Apparently he was terrible. He got booed off. He was a, a cross-dresser. So he was a male, but he dressed in like female 
clothes, basically, whether it was a, a female suit, he'd wear makeup, he'd wear earrings, things like that. And this was back in the like 90s when this stuff was that people don't really blink an eye too much of that, which is a good thing. They're like, yeah, that's fine if that's what you want to do. But back then that was like shocking. But he wasn't doing it for shock factor. That was just who he was and he wasn't afraid to be who he was. But anyway, I'm digressing now. He made it his goal, his mission to be a successful stand-up comedian. So from the way he tells it, he was terrible in the beginning but um, he just dedicated himself to the craft of stand-up and he ended up being, well, he's one of the most biggest successful comedians from the UK now. Yeah, that's awesome. Because I really enjoy comedy as well and podcasts or live shows or Netflix specials or whatever. But I have never actually tried to write a joke. I can imagine it being tremendously difficult and sweating or like it's one thing to write it but there's also another thing to get on stage and deliver it i think that is just the most nerve-wracking thing let's move on to this question so we're living in a oversensitive culture nowadays and people get cancelled for basically anything you could say anything that's slightly offensive and i said you're done right kevin hart and the oscars for example So do you believe that whatever joke you make, you necessarily believe in that? Well, let's go back a second. I'm excited to answer this question. You don't just get cancelled for nothing. Okay. You get cancelled for something. Right, right. Um, So I don't don't agree that it's just like you can just be cancelled for nothing these days. Like everyone's so oversensitive. Like you've done something. Maybe it's an overreaction. But anyway. Yeah, sure. Let's talk about this point, right? One is how far back do you go? And if that person is a comedian, let's just talk about comedians for a second. If that comedian said something offensive in that era where it was okay, and maybe they don't necessarily mean it in a bad way, for example, then is it okay to get cancelled? It might not even be that bad, but you have to be like over apologetic or something you did 10 years ago. I mean, that's not really in the spirit of comedy, is it? Like surely the spirit of comedy is you can say anything you want and whether someone likes it or not, it's really up to them. No? Yeah, I mean, you can say anything you want, but it doesn't mean you're free from consequences. So that that means then if at whatever point someone looks at that and they they go, whether it's a company, I mean, a person can individually be like, well, I don't like this, so I'm not going to listen. Or it could be a company that says, you know, this doesn't align with our values, so we don't want you to work with our company. Like, you know what I mean? I know what, you're, I know what you mean. Like, I'm not trying to be staunch because there's like the, the, what happened with James Gunn when he got like sacked by Disney from all the Guardians of the Galaxy movies for like tweets that he'd written years ago, which were I haven't even read them, I don't think, but apparently they were kind of jokes about pedophilia, which obviously not appropriate. But like, yeah, I agree. Like, was it an overreaction to be like, oh, he has lost his job and he's cancelled from all these movies because of something that he wrote 10 years ago? It is. It's just so difficult. Like we did a whole live episode, a live podcast episode. You can go back and check it out about this subject. Like, what can you laugh about in comedy today? And we did it with a panel of comedians and non-comedians. Um, so if you go in the back catalog and we we talk about this exact issue, which is it's really it's a tricky issue to talk about. But um, yeah, 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 like because well, I, th- I think comedians also get treated like differently. Right. It just depends who you are, because like Ricky Gervais talks about like Nazis and the Holocaust. And it's like, well, you know, he's still the biggest ever. And maybe because he's so independent in what he does and he's like, I'll actually produce, direct and make the thing. Do you believe in like whatever you make a joke about? Do you necessarily believe in that? Do you think that aligns? 
I see what you mean. So if you, I think the answer is you should. If you're going to make a joke and you're just trying to make that joke just to be controversial or just because you want to try and offend somebody for controversy, then just why bother? Like, why are you making that joke? Like, to talk about Ricky Gervais, the reason why he can be controversial is because he's so smart that he can back up what he's saying. Because, and if you listen, and I listened to a lot of podcast with Ricky Gervais when he talks about this subject he only says things that we, he 100% believes in he won't tell a joke that he doesn't believe in and the things he says he's smart enough to back it up with reasoning with clear reasoning of why he's saying that and he's also funny enough to make it funny and so he he can back up his opinions with reason but the way he says it if you don't think it's funny then don't listen and like you say, he does have that benefit of being independent, that he's not beholden to movie studios. If they drop him, he'll be like, yeah, fine, I don't mind. Like, you know what I mean? So I think you should 100% stand by your jokes. If you're going to make them, then yeah. Do you have any jokes that, you know, are about sensitive issues given the climate today, which is like gender, sexual orientation, political beliefs, race? Do you have any jokes that touch these subjects? No, I, I don't do anything controversial. I'm not smart enough to make it funny first of all but mostly i just don't want to offend anyone i don't want to be polarizing or controversial i just want people to have a good time and laugh so one of the things that gets talked about in the comedy world one thing i subscribe to is i will always try to punch up which means don't try and make fun of people who are more disadvantaged than you so as a white cisgender male I try not to make fun or make jokes about anyone who might have been marginalized or disadvantaged at any point. I do make some jokes about sexuality and sexual orientation, but those jokes are mostly based on me being a near 38-year-old white man from a very sheltered background, lots of white friends from a wee place in Glasgow, and then being getting older and being exposed to this new world of gender identity, sexual spectrums, and things like this. So I would try and make me the butt of that joke, not that. So I can talk about the issue, but it's, it's who is the butt of the joke is what I always think about. And I know other comedians, not all, but other comedians think about that as well. Who is the person that you're... Because what was it I talked about this before on a podcast for a joke to work somebody has to be suffering someone or something has to be suffering so what is the thing or the person or whatever that's suffering from that joke and i will try and make it me or someone that's in my peer group that's the person that's the butt of that joke so i don't know where this joke fits in i have one joke or, the, or i just try and make the joke ridiculous so it's so ridiculous that like you're not offending anyone so i have one joke where i talk about i'm um, getting into feminism and listening to podcasts about feminism which is true and you know and at the end of the day i believe that men and women should be treated equally right which we can all agree on and so i set the premise of this joke on a boat going down to vung tao the boat starts to take on water because it's vietnam of course right these things happen and so the captain tells everyone that they have to get off the boat and uh, i start to get angry in the joke about the fact that the captain says um ladies and gentlemen how do we know that everyone on the boat identifies as a lady or a gentleman? There's people in the middle. Then the second of all, the captain says, we have to man the lifeboats. And it's like, wait, why do we have to man the lifeboats? It's so misogynistic. We have to person the lifeboats. And then the joke finishes with, so we have to man the lifeboats. And then he says, women and children first. And I'm like, fuck that. I'm a feminist and I'm kicking women and children out of the way. I make sure that I get on the boat before anyone else. So the, that joke was meant to be about me not understanding the issue of mm. 
feminism and gender equality and all of this to make it to the point of just being so ridiculous that I'm kicking women and children out of the way. But I'm saying I'm a feminist because I believe in equality, you know? Final question. What do you think fuels your funny? Is it anger, insecurity, awkwardness, other people being provocative? What kind of fuels your material and your humor and uh, your performance? Mm, good question. And I, I like that you give a list of those things because I don't think it's any of them. I think I just enjoy it. It's just what I said uh, a second ago. I just enjoy making people laugh. I enjoy having a good time. I've always loved stand-up comedy, so I love the art form of it, which just sounds like such a wanky thing to say, but I guess that's what it is. So for me, it's just I just enjoy doing it. And when you when you realize that you can make people laugh, and then you and and as I said, most of my material is uh, I don't think I did say it. Most of my material is true stories. It's things that have happened, and then I just take that story and I'm I'm able to share it in a funny way because everyone's had something funny. How many times have you been to a comedian and they say they tell something and then you're like, there's no way that happened. One of the things what happened to me before I started doing comedy myself because I was too scared. I would ask comedians after the show if I met them and J.K. Hobson was one of them. I remember first time I saw him in Saigon and he told this ridiculous thing that had happened. And after the show, I met him, you know, he was hanging about and I was like, did that really happen? And he's like, yeah, there's no way I could make that up. And I'm almost notorious among the comedians here. I always still ask them, like, did that really happen? And they're like, yeah, no, what, you think I made that up? Of course it happened. So most comedians just have things that happen to them that probably happen to everyone, but they're, they're able to go, I can tell this in a funny way. And then 10% of it is stuff that's made up. So that joke, I just gave the example of that's just completely made up. I was never on a boat to Wungtown kicking women and children off. So there's sometimes I will just try and make it up because maybe I'm thinking of this issue of feminism and gender equality. But at the same time, I'm like, right, I want to talk about this on stage. But how can I make it funny? And how can I make it? I don't want to offend anyone. So what can I do to do that? So long-winded answer, what fuels my comedy? Just making people laugh. That's really it. Awesome, man. Awesome. Is there anything you want to plug, Neil? Like, where can people find you and find uh, the things you're involved in? Because you are involved in so many projects at the moment. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, 7 Million Bikes is the biggest one. So we now have a website, which has not been officially launched, but I'm, I've just about finished it. So you can go to www.7millionbikes.com. That's 7-S-E-V-E-N. And then on there, you can find links to all the podcasts. You can listen to the teasers. You can subscribe through Apple, Google, Spotify. So please go to any of those platforms, all the same platforms you can find Ranting Bananas on. And uh, make sure you follow and subscribe on there, uh, on Instagram as well, and YouTube. I'm starting to put more and more content on YouTube, the shows, things like that, so you can get a taste of the comedy. And um, you'll never find me on TikTok because I'm too old for that. <laughs> would we find you on clubhouse i don't even know what that is oh man is that well, my age is that my age showing? <laughs> uh yeah and well actually it's relatively new and uh same with how tiktok has made uploading videos easier than on youtube clubhouse has made audio easier than uploading a podcast so what you do is it's like imagine the chat rooms that we used to go back in the day in AOL and stuff like that right where you just go in and then anybody could chat to anybody but like if me and you let's say host a clubhouse room anybody could jump in and just start listening to us so and then once it's done it's done right so you have scheduled like shows i guess so it makes podcasting kind of a lot easier it is like real time sort of engagement i think 
Last month, they had 4 million downloads of, of the app itself. You should check it out. It's it's quite cool. And mm. maybe we should do a Vietnam content creator clubhouse group and, and try to get everybody on that and uh, start getting that going. That'd be awesome. That sounds, that sounds brilliant. Yeah, well, send me an invite and I'll look into that. I can definitely do that. And the one last thing I forgot to plug, though, sorry as well. I, I can't believe I forgot. Come to a show, please. If you're in Saigon, come to a show. We have a show every week. So first show of the month is in D7. That's a bubble comedy show. Then the second show of the month is in D2 at the Wham Saigon. That's the Blue Monkey comedy show. Then we have the headliner, which is a different comedian gets to do like 40 to 60 minutes. They do a headline set. We've done five or six of these now, and it's just been unbelievable to see these comedians who most of the comedians here do between five and 10 minutes. And you know they're hilarious, but to come out and like kill 40 minutes, like to keep the audience laughing for that length of time has been really, really amazing to see. So um, the headliner next month in March, we're going to have two headliners because we had to cancel February because of the old Rona. So check out the headliner. We've got Eric Garcia and Craig Craw this month. And then we're going to have a show at the Hard Rock Cafe, which hasn't been announced yet, but we're going to have 10 of the top comedians in Saigon all performing just five minutes each. So it's going to be quick, rapid fire, best five minutes. So it's going to be a really awesome night there. And then the last show of the month is where it all started. The first show we ever started was nearly a year and a half ago is at the Hop Shop in District 1. And it's called Where Are You From? And the reason it's called that is because we used to have tourists here and it was in the heart of the tourist town. And the idea was that tourists would come and then it would be like an audience thing where you go, where are you from? And then talk about where they're from. And that's how it, that's how it went for like six months. We had people from all over the world came to those shows and from Saigon as well, obviously all from different countries as well. Then the Rona happened and uh, now it's just all local Saigon people. But it still works because everyone's from different countries. But that was the whole concept was based on tourism. And that has all gone out the window now. But anyway, still come to that show as well. So we got six shows in March. If everything opens up, we're still waiting on the government uh, announcement. But pretty confident that shows will be allowed because there's been no community transmission for over two weeks in Saigon. And the outbreak seems to have been contained again. So Vietnam, Vodic. And um, we look forward to seeing you there. So check it all out on that website, 7millionbikes.com. Awesome, man. And uh, I'll be in town at the end of March. So if I could make it, I'm definitely coming to one of your shows. Any final words or thoughts or catchphrases that you want to... <laughs> <laughs> just the, the thing we're talking about with like being cancelled or the sensitivity, like, you know, then that's just my opinion and I, I could be wrong. And maybe someone will be offended by what I said. So what do I know? Yeah, I was super offended because you were like, oh, there's a hole in the boat and oh, it's Vietnam. And I was like, oh, my God, that hurt me in the heart, man. Holy shit. No, yeah. nah, you're good. <laughs> but even that's a good point, though, because you do have to think. I remember being given feedback from a show one time that I was so proud of. It was from a Vietnamese friend and she messaged me and she's like, oh, one of my friends was at your show. She loved it. And the other thing she said to me, she found you really respectful of Vietnam and Vietnamese people. And I was like, wow. I mean, and it is something I, as I said, I try not to be controversial. So even thinking, it's funny you make a joke about it, but I do think like, well, is that offensive to be like, oh, you know, there's a hole in a boat because it's Vietnam. Is that being like, so you do, I do, you do think about these things Like, you know, you want to make sure you're having fun i sorry when i say you i mean me i want to make sure i'm having fun and everyone else is and no one is feeling put out or offended other comedians might completely disagree and think we're going to try and be as offensive as possible and live on the edge and all of that stuff and you can do that if you want that's completely fine 
yeah, yeah, exactly. It's your it's your own style, own brand. It's is you know it's whatever that you can live by, right? You're gonna live by your words, as you said earlier. So if you're okay with it, do it. But you know, if you get cancelled, it's also the consequences of the shit that you're talking about. I think I think you're right. If someone said something a really long time ago, maybe it's a bit unfair. If someone has done something pretty recently and they get cancelled, well, you know. But I do like this topic and it's it's really interesting because what there is a bit of inconsistency. So what I don't understand is Eddie Murphy, who's one of the funniest people that's ever lived, did Eddie Murphy Raw back in the like what 80s, which I've watched growing up, and I've watched that again recently. Have you mm. seen it? Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, it's awesome. It's it's one of the most offensive things ever. He talks about like faggots and people with HIV and like it's so offensive. It's ridiculous. Even in that era, it was offensive and it's still offensive now. He's not been cancelled. That show's still available on Netflix. And for some reason, that's just kind of been overlooked. So I don't really understand that. But I also, the whole thing of like, oh, it's a different era. I don't, I don't think we should accept that because it's just like, what? oh, it's okay because we were racist in the past so we can let them away with it. Because when we talked about, when I mentioned earlier about that we did the live podcast episode about this topic, what can you say in comedy today? I did a bit of research because I was hosting it. I, I wasn't on the panel, so I wasn't given opinion. I was just being the, the moderator. And I found this um, British TV show from like the 60s called Curry and Chips. And it's on YouTube. You can look it up. And it's right. one of the most racist shows you've ever seen. It's basically like this immigrant from Pakistan. I'm pretty sure it's like Brownface as well. I'm oh, forgetting gosh. the name of the... I'm forgetting the name of the comedian. Let me just quickly look it up. It's like a super funny, um, super famous um, British comedian that wrote it, Milligan and Eric Sykes. The whole episode is this guy is from Pakistan. He changes his name to like O'Shaughnessy or O'Rourke and tells him he's Irish. And every joke is just basically like a racist joke against this guy. Right. And it's terrible. It's horrible to watch. But you're like, this went from, this was the BBC. It was mainstream humor. <laughs> it's 1969 and so that's like i don't think it's okay to accept like oh well that used to be okay in the past because that that's that wasn't right in the past it was wrong in the past and it's wrong now so we should identify so if that show i've probably not been cancelled because it was cancelled like 50 years ago but if that show was still on tv and it gets cancelled that's fine because it's so inappropriate we should recognize that it should never have been made in the first place yeah you make a really good point and i agree with you i think where I'm coming from is not not to say like, oh, racism was okay back in the 50s, so therefore it should be okay now. I think that's uh, clearly that's bad. Like me and my friends called each other faggots when we were younger, right? And or like using the word retard, for example, let's just not even go with the faggot word, but like a retard or spastic or whatever. Right. Yeah. It was yeah like, yeah, for sure. What happens if like that slips into conversation and then you're automatically branded a fucking Nazi or, you know, a bigot or something or like whatever. It's a very difficult line to tread. Like if it's comedy uh, and if it's like content that's published out there, then of course you're going to get different views of the spectrum. There are comedy or things that are timeless comedies, right? And there's one that's like era specific. So things that just don't age well because it's just inherently wrong or just in poor taste. And there's always going to be that. Like dumb, right? like Dumbo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like just, just really stupid shit that you're just like, oh, that's mm. not going to... I don't know. I, I think it's, you know, case by case situation. And we tend to like try to generalize things to put it in a box and try to 
back our arguments, but there, there's so much nuance in this subject, right? Like you have to take it for that, maybe that joke specifically or that piece of material that they created. No, but you're right. It's uh, fascinating. And maybe this question is always coming up in every era, in every situation or every change of context, right? Throughout history. It's a, it's a really difficult subject. I'll leave you with this. Go back, you yourself and any listeners on the 7 Million Bikes podcast, find the live show. And one of the discussion questions we ask, and we're not going to go through the answer now because it could be a whole nother podcast. Can rape jokes be funny? All right. And on that note, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not finish on that. No, that's a terrible <laughs> note. Cut this all out.